Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Sanibunani. Tobela. And Um Professor Ronel Yule, the Acting Dean of the Faculty of Humanities. Uh, Professor Chris Lunsberg, our inaugurator this evening. Dr. Sipa Mandla Zondi, who has volunteered his services as our respondent uh, this evening. The executive and senior leaders of the university, members of Senate and other academics. Students, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me in particular great pleasure to welcome Mrs. Gladys Lansberg. Uh, this is uh, Chris's mother this evening, but also Mrs. Felicia Lunsberg, partner and wife to, to Professor Lunsberg, his brothers Adrian and Myron Lunsberg, his sister Marilyn Lunsberg, their partners, um, nieces, right? Am I missing anybody? <laughs> Covered. It's okay for now. <laughs> It, it is probably one of the one of the roles of vice chancellor that I enjoy the most, and that I take great pleasure and comfort from to be able to do as we do this evening, and that is to induct into office formally that is a senior member of the academic community. And so it is indeed a very great honor hear all of that, very great honor. It doesn't sound great English, and I apologize for that. But it's also a very special privilege for me then to, to extend a very warm word of welcome to each one of you to the professorial inaugural lecture of Professor Chris Lunsberg. And so we express a very warm word of welcome to his loved ones, to his very special guests, and of course his colleagues. This is indeed a proud and a landmark moment, of course for Professor Lunsberg, but equally so for all of his loved ones, and I should add equally so also for us here at the University of Johannesburg, as well as uh, in South Africa and, of course, beyond. Now, inaugurations, I often uh, suggest many a times pompous and decadent, but hopefully mostly dignified. We'll see about decadent and the quality of the wine. Uh, but hopefully mostly dignified, well-meaning and unsullied, we are told date back to ancient Greece as the opportunity for the formal investiture of a person of high office, and it marks the formal assumption of office or position of authority. And so today is that day that marks the rites of passage and the ceremonial entry of Professor Lunsberg into the distinguished community of university's most senior scholars. And so it is indeed an office and a position of authority and leadership which we shall not assume lightly 
but shall do so with considerable and ongoing thought, reflection, deliberation, and, should I add, presence of mind. I'm, of course, reminded that inaugurations usually follow well after the actual appointment to the role of the post, and we, and these are often a test, an indication as to whether the incumbent still holds the now somewhat older role of office as, in, as interesting as at the time of the interview. Right? So the interview was one moment, all serious-minded, all collected and focused. And so we'll see. The gap between the interview, in particular those of us who were part of the interview, and of course the, the moment this evening. And so we shall therefore observe Professor Lundsberg tonight with more than an ordinary level of interest. <laughs> I remarked earlier that the professorial inauguration is as important to the incumbent and their loved ones and colleagues as it is to the university. I say this since the inaugural lecture is as much a reflection on the state and the intent of the contemporary university and how it measures up this evening to Professor Lundsberg's inaugural lecture on Afrocentric diplomacy the Global Decade 98 to 2008, and Pan-African Agency in World Affairs. On these auspicious occasions, I often remark on and remind us of Martin Gregorian's hopefulness and controversy when he announced that, and I quote, universities are not only repositories of past human endeavor, they are instruments, as he put it, of civilization, can see where the controversy lies, right? They provide tools for learning, he continues, understanding and progress. He continues, they are the wellspring of action, a source of self-renewal, of intellectual growth and of hope. They are a medium of progress, of autonomy, of empowerment, of independence and of self-determination, end of quote. And yet at the same time, I remind us of Wernick's argument that the university has a contradictory relationship with its surrounding society. On the one hand, the autonomy in terms of its axial values of truth, truth, wisdom, science, and so on. And on the other side, those who control the means of material production, control the means of mental production. And the dominant ideas are the ideas of those who dominate, end of quotation. And also the reflections of Professor Emmanuel Wallerstein, who is a visit, an occasional visitor uh, here at the university, as he considers his own journey, and I quote, it seems to me that it is the duty of the scholar to be politically and intellectually subversive of received truths, but that the only way this subversion can be socially useful is if it reflects a serious attempt to engage with and understand the real world as best as we can, end of quotation. I'm also reminded on this occasion that very few books are available in decent bookstores on what it is to be a professor, and in particular, what the freedoms and duties of the most senior scholar of the university is. 
In this regard, I offer you the reflections of a colleague at Hong Kong University, Bruce McFarlane, who in his book, Intellectual Leadership in Higher Education, Renewing the Role of the University Professor, last year sought to correct this oversight. And he argues convincingly that given the corporatization of the research agenda, professors must reclaim professorial leadership and that they thus occupy a very special role. Specifically, McFarlane argues two freedoms, namely that of critic and advocate are essential for professors to execute their four duties, being those of mentor, of guardian, of standards, of enabler of networking and mobilizer of resources for others, and fourthly, of being the ambassador for the institution or the discipline. So, this evening we will have only one small insight into how Professor Lunsberg responds to this call for the return of professorial leadership. And so let me now invite the Acting Dean of the Faculty of Humanities, Professor Ronel Yule, to introduce Professor Lunsberg. I thank you. Vice-Chancellor, Professor Innsberg, members of MEC, ELG, Senate and other academics, members of the faculty review panel currently visiting the faculty, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. From the dusty streets of Reicher Park to the leafy suburbs of Auckland Park, from the dreamy spires in Oxford to the stunningly beautiful Stanford campus in Palo Alto, from the white sands in Dar es Salaam to the rising dragon of Vietnam, Chris Lansberg is grateful for the opportunities offered by his Kasi on the East Rand and his alma mater, UJ, where he believes a firm foundation was laid for him. The memory of his late father who passed away when he was just three years old, to the sacrifice of his mother, his brothers and only sister, are the stuff that inculcated uh, a burning desire and drive for Chris to keep on keeping on. Here is UJ's first Rhodes Scholar to study at Oxford, where he obtained his MPhil and DPhil international degrees. During his Oxford years, he was social secretary of the Africa Society under the leadership of Zimbabwean Deputy Prime Minister Arthur Mutambara. Before leaving for Oxford, he obtained his BA and BA honours degrees from UJ and remains indebted to his mentors in politics. During the tough RAU years, he was active in student politics. He helped to establish and was president of the first Sansco branch, branch at an Afrikaans university. And he also served as president of Africans Against Apartheid. He was the first black student in history of UJ to live in residence when the campaign to open apartheid residences at RAU was one of their major rallying points as student activists. After RAU, he departed for a year to Rhodes University in 1990 to read for his MA International Studies. He spent three years at Wits University as senior lecturer and co-founded the Center for Africa's International Relations. In 1992, Chris was appointed as director of the Center for Policy Studies. 
Chris says he would like to pay homage to the brothers Pahat, from whom he has learned immeasurable amounts of knowledge and has even developed the guts to stand up to Aesop. <laughs> he currently holds the DST, NRF, UDRAF, Sarkhi Chair in African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy and is Senior Associate in the UJ School of Leadership after serving as HOD of Politics for almost four years. Chris has published extensively and lectured widely on South African foreign policy and African diplomacy in South Africa and internationally, and has authored and co-edited nine books, including his 2010 title with Macmillan, The Diplomacy of Transformation, South African Foreign Policy and Statecraft. With more than 100 accredited and miscellaneous articles, monographs and book chapters to his name, he constantly tries to preempt his vice dean research, the DVC research, and the DVC academic, who are on his case for throughputs. And of course, the VC, who constantly asks him, where are my outputs? <laughs> Nightmarish words indeed, says Chris. His greatest strength and his latest and great, greatest in, inspiration comes from, and his greatest gratitude undoubtedly goes to, his son, Juan and Bevan, his little princess, Daniela Ashanti, and the queen bee, his wife, Felicia. He says he will probably get a clap from his wife later tonight. <laughs> but that too, he has come to accept. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Lansberg. See, there's enough water here, there's enough dash here, so we can going, uh, get going. Um, uh, Vice Chancellor, um, uh, Interim Dean, um, as we say in South Africa, all protocols <laughs> observed. You have, you have all been recognized. Um, Allow me before I get into the lecture uh, just to share with you a couple of anecdotal notes and, and, and single out a number of very important people who were instrumental in, in helping me along this journey. In fact, if you read the, uh, uh, the narrative CV, um, you would notice I do single out uh, a very mad Nigerian. He's graced us with his presence. He's flown all the way from the Republic of Cape Town <laughs> tonight. Dr. Adebajo, I would like to really um, well, welcome other. Don't, don't ask too many questions about what we were up to during the Oxford days. Safe to say, he was my wingman. Um, I, I really would like to single out a number of people who were instrumental in my academic career. Um, the Department of Politics uh, at the then RAW, uh, UJ, all members. Uh, I say in an earlier version, uh, Prof. Ewell asked me to cut down the, uh, the narrative CV because it 
it read longer than the actual text that I'm about uh, to, to present. Um, but I, I tell a story uh, there that uh, when I was first appointed as HOD of politics, I grinned with the idea that it was absolutely great to hear my senior professors calling me stool or chair uh, until two weeks later when it dawned on me uh, all the work that I needed to do. So I would like to pay tribute to the Department of Politics, all of them, Albert Fenter is not here, uh, Susan Boyson uh, uh, can't be with us tonight, but uh, uh, Yolanda Sadi. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll come to the international cohort uh, in a moment. I would like to single out uh, uh, Fani Kuta, together with somebody else in the audience, and I'll say a moment about that. Um, they were the ones who exposed me to this thing called policy studies. In fact, I remember a story. Ada, you would remember this story very well. So Ada Bajo and I sat uh, vice chancellor um, on the white sands on the beachfront in Dar es Salaam with our crazy friend uh, Wesiga Baregu. Uh, so he decides to go to the gents. And so we decide to, uh, to follow him. Uh, I promise you it was... Uh, just to follow him to, for us to um, just, just um, uh, ease, up on our, ease up on ourselves. So, so as we walk into the gents, I ask Adabaja, I'll never forget the moment. So he sees me walking in and Ari behind me and he says, Ah, Mr. Policy himself, policy this and policy that. And I remember that moment uh, very uh, vividly. I would like to recognize... Um, uh, Mamu Muchi. Garth Lapier can't be easier. I would, I would really like to recognize Garth Lapier's role uh, in my life. You know, you can't change history. Stephen Friedman was absolutely instrumental in my career for the five years at the Center for Policy Studies, and I would like to pay homage to um, Stephen Friedman. Let me now single out four people. I think Without them, uh, I wouldn't be able to stand here today academically. I would first like to recognize the role of a very brave woman. I see she's in the audience tonight. She had the guts to relocate to Jacaranda City, um, cross the Burevors curtain, but I have no doubt that Maxi Skuman will regain her sanity one day and return to Igoli. Where is Maxi? Uh, Maxie is in the office. Uh, there, there she is. Uh, please come back to uh, to, to, to Egoli. Um, and then I really want, would like to, um, um, uh, Professor Adadeji can't be here tonight. I would like to really pay tribute to him. I would like to single out my Oxford dons, uh, Anthony Green, Sudhir Zari Singh, and Andrew Harrell. But allow me, if you will, to single out two people who I believe shaped my career and triggered my passion for diplomacy and uh, foreign policy analysis um, in uh, tremendous, fascinating and exciting ways. Uh, and that is uh, uh, Dr. Adekeya Adebajo uh, and Professor Dion Geldnes. I would really like to um, uh, you to join me in really uh, paying a tribute to them because uh, without them 
I wouldn't be standing here tonight. So Ade and uh, your crowd. Uh, Vice Chancellor, I'll, I'll get into a hopefully provocative lecture in just one minute. Just just two details. Incidentally, I was told, and Professor Ewell, I am going to get a club tonight. Um, I asked my two sons whether I should say it. This was very coincidental, but it happens to be my wife's birthday. Wow. I gate crashed the party. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'll take, I'll take you to Hyde Park on Saturday. <laughs> we don't have to go to Cresta. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> it's my wife's birthday. It was really coincidental. So there I sat. So there I sat. Put yourself in my shoes. Do I say no to the Vice Chancellor for the tenth time? Or do I disappoint my wife? I decided I'd rather take the club and I won't mess around with my job. And I said to her, uh, I, I think we should do it um, tonight. Just for a final story. Adabajo, you've heard this before. True story, VC. So I walked my daughter out of the house about a month ago, five weeks ago, seven years old. Uh, the apple of my eye, that well, of the one eye. The other apple is, 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 is celebrating a birthday tonight. I have to get this diplomacy thing right. So we see, as, as, as we walk out of the house, my daughter says to me, Daniela says, Pa, what is a diplomacy? Just in the exact same way. I say, a diplomacy, girl, is when people have differences, but they don't fight. They, they talk and, and, and they talk and they talk it out until they reach agreement and then they're friends again. Uh, then she continues, Pa, are you a diplomacy? <laughs> I said, my girl, I'll buy you McDonald's this <laughs> afternoon. Uh, Vice Chancellor, um, a week ago I uh, attended the annual reconciliation lecture at the University of Free State with Professor Maluleke. This year the lecture was uh, presented by the president of Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, who invoked the curious concept of quote-unquote narrative interrupters, calling on us as we seek to challenge conventional wisdoms and dominant discourse to interrupt the narrative and introduce new, even unpopular, narratives. Another individual, a prominent political intellectual in this country, recently called in, a, in an email exchange for us to, and I quote, um, be liberated from this horrible intellectual intimidation, a situation which suggests that because of an accident that, that happened in Polokwane in December 2007, and I suppose Esalen Park in 2008, we should not talk uh, about this dominant period in the politics and foreign policy of South Africa, that that period should be put on the back burner. This, I suggest to you, is dis uh, disingenuous, it's false, it is anti-intellectual, and it is quite frankly dangerous. So I want to talk to you tonight about the need for us 
to liberate some discourses, not to be shy to talk about certain periods. So the African Union Commission has declared the years 2013 to 2014 as the years commemorating Pan-Africanism and African Renaissance, making this a good time for us to reflect. Whilst there's something special and unique about the collective leadership exercised by African leaders during the decade 1998 to 2008, did African leaders practice a distinctive brand of collective agency and shared responsibility in continental and world affairs. Just one or two lines on the concept. Agency or actiness uh, in international relations theory is, like many issues, highly contentious. The concept is often used in vague, loose, and general terms. Agency in IR essentially refers to actiness, influence, empower the ability to shape and mold events and realize goals. Colin Wright defines agency as the faculty or state of acting or exerting power. For Barry Buzan, acting and exercising power are the hallmarks of agency. In foreign policy parlance, and I'm more comfortable with foreign policy analysis, Christopher Hill states that uh, agency is the possession of individual human beings' uh, ability to take decisions and implementing them on behalf of entities of which states are the most effective. In this lecture, we should subscribe to foreign policy analysis theory, which hold that the individual leader and groups of leaders matter greatly. Individual leaders and small elites of decision makers on inner coterie of decision makers determine agency. Let me move on to the idea of Afrocentric agency. The idea of Afrocentric diplomacy is borrowed from the theory of Afrocentricity, the notion that Africa cannot advance intellectually or spiritually from the colonial legacy that it has been given. Afrocentricity is described by the high priest of the concept, Molefe Asante, as, quote-unquote, the theory of African agency. The decade 1998 to 2008 will go down as the golden decade of African agency and diplomacy in world affairs, a period that was certainly on par with the height of decolonization in the 1950s and early 1960s. During this decade, we saw a revival of African attempts to strengthen their voice um, for greater influence and attention and a world order that would be more favorable to them. The golden decade 1998 to 2008 saw a number of African states, including South Africa, Nigeria, Algeria, Senegal, Mozambique, Tanzania, Ghana, Ethiopia, and others, organizing their leaders to play innovative policy roles on the continent as they sought to put in place the ingredients that would make for, African, for an African community of states. Inspired, Dr. Adebayo, this is not psychophancy, 
inspired by South Africa's second democratically elected president, Thabo Mbeki. These leaders methodically arranged themselves into what Gilbert Kariagala called an African Renaissance coalition, as states belonging to this association sought to put in place the building blocks of continental order, while articulating a clear African outlook for continental political, economic, social, and development renewal, yet still in favor of partnership, not paternalism, from the outside world. Elsewhere, I have depicted the post-Cold War quest for an African Renaissance as the fifth wave of Pan-Africanism. Kariagala singled out Mbeki as probably the most influential leader of his generation in trying to reassert African agency and leadership in international practice. In African affairs, Mbeki will be remembered for his pragmatic construction of a new security framework for Africa, said Kadiagala. Apart from individual leaders and their roles, this period saw the creation of a number of key African initiatives. These included the construction of the African Union, negotiating the Millennium Africa Recovery Plan map of 1999, the Omega Plan of 2000, which was later transformed into the New Africa Initiative and the New Partnership for Africa's Development of 2001 as modernizing development plans. They also emphasize the elevation of regional economic communities, SADC, ICAS in um, Central Africa, IGAT in the Horn of Africa, East African Community in East Africa, ECOWAS in West Africa, the Arab Maghreb Union uh, in North Africa. But to, to dub these um, regional uh, entities as the building blocks of continental union, the establishment of the African peer review mechanism was indeed Africa's most innovative governance promotion tool and the search for a new strategic partnership between Africa and the outside world. Uh, individual leaders who have spearheaded these initiatives and boosted Africa's agency so profoundly during this period include Thabo Mbeki, Olusegun Obasanjo, John Kufo of Ghana, Abdullah Iwad of Senegal, Joachim Chisano of Mozambique, Benjamin, Benjamin Nkapa of Tanzania, Mele Zanawi of Ethiopia, and Pedro Pires of Sao Tome and Principe and others who championed the African uh, agenda. Mamu Muchi warns us that if we're not careful, unless we reclaim the agency of this decade, we might see an aggressive scramble for Africa returning. Arabajo is fond of quoting Ali Mazrui, his mentor. In 1996, uh, 1967 uh, already, I won't tell you when I was born, uh, Ali Mazrui, when invoking his concept of Pax Africana, asked the question as to who will take responsibility for Africa's security after the, the decolonialists uh, de had departed. It is an indictment indeed that almost 50 years later, 
we have to ask the question, who should set the agenda for Africa in the continent's quest for economic emancipation, peace, security, and stability? In short, who speaks on Africa's behalf? A brief note on Africa in the post-Cold War context. In his uh, seminal work, uh, The Curse of Berlin, Arakeya de Bajo has pointed out that despite the continent having to grapple with the curse of Berlin, we should not in any way suggest that Africa and the Africans have no agency in contemporary international relations. Since the end of formal apartheid in 1994, and especially since assumption to power in 1999 of Obasanjo in Nigeria and Mbeki in South Africa, Incidentally, both of them became presidents two weeks apart from each other, Obasanjo on the 31st of May and Becky on the 16th uh, of June. But the assumption of these two leaders to formal office, of course, Obasanjo has traded his khakis for civilian clothes, clothes having been uh, a former military leader. But I think it's absolutely fair to say that the two of them developed a special untarned or untarned cordial like Germany and France or the special relationship between the United States and Britain. Uh, the relationship between Nigeria and South Africa is the closest we had to an untarned cordial. Some African states had been in the forefront um, of late 20th and early 21st century Africa to play this pivotal role. It is suggested by some commentators that Africa has to be aware of the triumphalism of the West and the emergence of new powers, China, India, Brazil, uh, and Russia. Obasanjo, one of the undoubted key players during this golden decade, confirmed the importance of the post-Cold War context when he argued that at the turn of the 21st century, Africa needed a new development paradigm to meet the challenges and tap the opportunities of contemporary globalization in creatively uh, proactive and Im uh, imaginative ways. Emerging blocs, China, Russia, India, Brazil, and others, are now courting Africa. However, this is not merely for altruism and friendship. They too have huge appetites for the continent's vast mineral resources as they join the USA, Britain, France, and other established Western powers, and buy into the idea of Africa as, a scholar put it recently, the new playground, um, a new growth point. Even the late Ethiopian Prime Minister Mele Zenawi, a key member of what Gadiagala called the Renaissance Coalition, labeled Africa as a potential pole of global, global growth. These views have been borne out by the continent having seen on average, economic growth rates across the board of some 6% per annum. And economic growth is an imperative as Africa goes in search of a new developmental paradigm driven by developmental states. But in, in spite of the economic optimism, politically and developmentally, it continues to face many challenges and is to contend with unfinished business. A brief word on the period, and then I'll conclude. The golden decade 
of African agency. While the decade 1998-2008 will stand out in history as a golden age, it was by no means the only pivotal moment. Recognition should be given to efforts that went before the African Research Council under the able leadership of Adebayo Olakoshi, one of Africa's finest and rising uh, stars. He argues, Africa's post-independence development narrative is, in the main, a story of successive concerted efforts aimed at progressively transforming the economic, political, and social fortunes of the people and countries of the continent for the better. Over the decades, and in more recent times, African states have chosen to try and achieve their goals through a combination of individual and collective efforts, suggesting that they had long been mindful of the need to exercise agency and leadership. Here, could, uh, uh, here we could add many other pivotal historical moments in Africa's uh, attempts, most notably um, the Pan-Africanism in 1900, led by Pan-Africanists such as Dubois, Gavi, Padmore, and in the 1960s, Nkrumah. One of Africa's most respected new generation intellectuals, um, Olakoshi, argued that the drive for the retrieval and reconstruction of the African identity and personality and the hope of the re-entry of Africa into the committee of nations as an independent and equal player has always been at the heart of the Pan-African quest. In the 1970s, we saw some innovative uh, initiatives. Uh, liberation movements were embodied to push for self-determination while working with continental bodies such as the UN Economic Commission for Africa, UNECA, under the leadership of Adebayo Abdeji, uh, arguably Africa's finest scholar practitioner. The 1980s heralded efforts to reverse the adverse effects of Western World Bank and IMF-sponsored structural adjustment programs. Um, driven by the Washington Consensus. We've seen the Lagos Plan of Action, the Final Act of Lagos of 1980, the African Priority Programs for Economic Recovery, uh, and so on. But there is no gainsay that there was something unique about the period 1998 to 2008. This golden decade of African diplomacy saw a number of African states, and I mentioned them, South Africa, Nigeria, Algeria, uh, organizing themselves to play innovative policy roles as they sought to put in place the ingredients that would turn Africa into a community uh, of states. Let me, now, uh, let, let me now move on to the new partnership for Africa's development. Fearful of the penchant of Western powers to articulate um, and dominate Africa's policy agenda, these states took it upon themselves to articulate a new modernizationist plan for Africa, one that emphasized education, health, infrastructural development, the strengthening of governance, and promotion of democratization. In terms of democratic governance, what again makes the golden decade unique is that the promotion of good governance occupied a central place uh, in Africa's policy landscape. They were determined to develop a common governance ethos within the 
AU framework. Joachim Chisano, former president of Mozambique, said, the African continent and many developing countries have for the past two decades been involved in the de democratization process as democracy is gradually being accepted as the politically as, as the political ideology that can better inform internal and external socio-political and economic relations. The establishment in 2003 of the African peer review me mechanism was an example of a new leadership dynamism on the continent. The promotion of good governance in non-confrontational fashion or in a quiet diplomatic manner occupied a central position in the emerging African agenda. Before the conclusion, 2009 and beyond, the withering away of the African agency question mark. The global financial crisis of 2008-2009 has negatively impacted Africa's developmental prospects, and this has started to reverse the gains that the continent has started to make in achieving the Millennium Development Goals. Garth Lapierre correctly observed in this regard that the global financial crisis has brought into sharp relief the magnitude and scope of the challenge that the, that the continent has to confront, and this has a direct bearing on the African agenda. The past five years or so have witnessed major problems and obstacles creeping in which undermines Africa's agency and unity in world affairs. The years 2010 to 2013 in particular were characterized by divisions among some of the continent's leaders symbolized by three significant events which brought the divisions to the fore um, two in 2011, namely the NATO-led war against Libya and the military intervention in Côte d'Ivoire by the French gendarmerie after the stalemate in the October and November 2010 elections, which resulted in the forceful removal of Laurent Bagbo, an institution of Alassane Ouattara as president in April 2011. And the third one, the decision by the continent's most industrialized state, South Africa, to field its former minister of um, foreign affairs and also former Minister of Home Affairs at the time, Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma, to stand against Jean Ping from Gabon for the position of chairperson of the African Union Commission. These three developments reveal deep inter- and intra-African fissures which serve to weaken African agency and leadership in international relations. One of the problems for Africa in the era of peace and security which was also a problem faced during the Mbeki and even Mandela periods, um, which heightened uh, uh, and, and, and diminished Africans' agency, is its dependence on external RGs and financial resources from Western powers. It is said that up to 90% of the budget of the AU comes from the European and American partners. The AU and African states are heavily dependent on Americans, Europeans, and most recently Chinese resources for the maintenance of peace and security. For as long as Africa remains dependent on the resources of external powers to secure peace and security on the continent, 
it will be vulnerable to the dictates of external powers. During the period 1998 to 2008, its negotiation of a G8 Africa partnership agreement was conducted in part to attract resources from the G8 and other bodies, but on the basis of mutual accountability and mutual responsibility. But President Mbaki recently said, we have witnessed a, and I quote, woeful abandonment of African action plans in support of NEPA. The late Archie Mafeji articulated a similar view when he stated, when Africans speak for themselves and about themselves, the world will, the world will hear their authentic voices and will be forced to come to terms with it in the long run. If we are adequately Afrocentric, the international implications will not be lost on others. Three final points. The past five years or so have seen disengagement and uncertainty on the part of many African states, greatly exacerbated by the weight of the so-called Arab Spring, the coup against elected Egyptian president and leader of the Muslim Brotherhood caught many by surprise. And the AU Commission and African leadership were challenged again as it had been in 2011 over Libya. In terms of governance, the APRM today for African states, few African states, not even pivotal ones like South Africa and Nigeria, take responsibility for its operationalization uh, and the program uh, is in real uh, jeopardy. The state visit recently to South Africa by Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan was an important and strategic move. The rapprochement set out to restore the Antan cordial between two key players and arguably Africa's most important bilateral relationship. I conclude, African agency in leadership in world affairs are being threatened by weaknesses and fractures continentally and the marginalization and disregard of Africa abroad. It is opposite to end on a challenging note to African universities, scholars and intellectuals. Writing in the China Daily recently, renowned African scholar Mahmoud Mamdani opined that the Chinese and other emerging and industrial powers are, and I quote, seeing Africa just as a source of primary information, but not as a source of intellectuals. Mamdani's analysis, I suggest, should be taken seriously. African agency has to be reclaimed. It is not going to be offered to Africans on some silver plate from abroad. Universities have a crucial role to play in engendering critical debate and unpacking, explaining, and informing the pan-African agency that the continent so desperately needs if it is to claim the 21st century as the African century. At the very least, universities should be in the forefront of debating, explaining, and analyzing the African agenda and trying to disentangle the continent's search for development, peace and security, governance and strategic cooperation with the outside world. To cite Adebayo Olokoshi, nurturing a new generation 
of African scholars imbued with a critical mind and committed to the agenda of progressive Pan-African, Pan-Africanism will be the greatest tribute we can pay. I thank you and I look forward to standing on the shoulder of an emerging giant, Dr. Zondi. I thank you very much. Professor Lansbeck got an opportunity to be mentioned first in an event uh, before the principal, Professor Lansbeck. <laughs> Executive Dean, Principal, thank you very much for this opportunity and uh, good, good evening. It is very difficult to respond to Professor Lansbeck on any occasion, including on this occasion, uh, partly because he, he begs you beforehand to be lenient to him. <laughs> and to disregard the controversial points he makes towards the end. But also because uh, uh, I've known him for quite a, a while. Uh, when I first knew him, I thought he worked for Deco. <laughs> because every time I'm, I see him, he would be at Deco. And he would most probably be speaking or responding to somebody, including the former Deputy Minister Aziz Pahad. And when he responds to him, he responds like they've, they've been drinking together or they are very close friends. And, um, and, and, and made me think that he really must be working for DECO. <laughs> uh, the second reason is that um, uh, Professor Lansbeck, um, without declaring it, he likes to be seen as both a scholar and, a, and an activist at the same time. Uh, he speaks in a voice of an activist, and uh, you are intimidated to disagree with what he said. <laughs> Let's pull you aside after the meeting and say, you can't say that in front of my wife and say I was wrong on that point. And uh, my last experience with him is when we, at the Institute for Global Dialogue, we invited him and Johansi uh, to edit a book on South Africa's foreign policy, last, uh, the, which, which came out in December last year. And uh, we had a number of colleagues that were supposed to, to do that job and he was paired up with one colleague who was worried that if he, if he does this together with Landsberg, uh, he will be doing the heavy lifting and uh, Landsberg will be getting the glory. <laughs> and uh, it so turned out that the other colleague pulled out and could not do the heavy lifting. He ran for his life uh, and, and Landsberg uh, stayed on. One of the strangest things about his editorship was that um, uh, as, as people are coordinating the work uh, between them as editors and, and, and authors, uh, you would get a, a first uh, response and a first feedback on a paper at, at about uh, a quarter to two in the morning, 
And the next one will come at about uh, quarter past three, and I'm thinking his wife, Jesus. And then the, the next one might be coming at about quarter to four. And the last one, he says, I have delivered. It will be at half past seven. And I wonder, does he really go to work around that time? Or he works from home. But then the work was delivered, and, and it was delivered well on time. And of course, uh, Professor Lansbeck is, uh, uh, is very well known for his work with the Concerned Africans uh, group, uh, where for a moment he forgot his, his academic etiquette and started to lead a campaign uh, over the invasion of Libya and, and picked up a few other, other things. And uh, we saw his activist uh, uh, part in that. So when he writes the way he's written uh, with regards to this and proposing that uh, there could be a way of understanding the, the African integration challenge uh, from within, um, uh, recognizing that Africa has agency, and, and recognizing that Africans who, or anyone who, 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 who seeks to understand Africa uh, is also an agent in that knowledge. Um, uh, he brings together his uh, sharp scholarship and his activist uh, instinct. Um, the, the last disappointment I heard of him, which was one of very many, uh, was when uh, he, uh, he, 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 he pitched late for a seminar, and he had run out of excuse because his grandmother died sometime in one of the occasions, and his aunt cried in another one. And in this particular case, he just blamed the vice chancellor for giving him for for giving them for giving him the job the job of a of a residence warden because then he had to take care of a a student who had disappeared, and, and he was to blame for a student who had disappeared uh, to the bar. And, uh, and I knew he had nothing to do with the bar because he stopped drinking long, long time ago. Yeah, so that was the, the last one. Just, just a, a few things. Um, I'm just going to pick in a few things uh, about what he said, and I'm sure it's pretty obvious what he said. Uh, his, his suggestion and his argument in his paper uh, makes three assumptions um, can be understood on the basis of three assumptions. The first one is that the practitioner in the study of African integration might be, must be psychically emancipated enough to express themselves outside the structures uh, that constrict him. Those are, one, Eurocentrism. The second one is disciplinary decadence. And therefore, this practitioner is able to act outside what is given in the current uh, approach to knowledge generally and what the, the, the Vice Chancellor referred to as, as intellectual domination. The second one, it makes an assumption that we recognize that the intellectual enterprise, generally as we know it, because of its root in the same uh, system as colonialism, as imperialism, as Western modernity generally um, is, is dominated, the, the intellectual enterprise is dominated, it's in a state of what uh, Walter McNuller calls a, a state of coloniality. And, and that therefore Afrocentric, Afrocentric agency is a, an attempt to liberate one uh, from, from those strictures. 
The third assumption is that there's a possibility of uh, what has been called dialogic uh, cosmopolitanism, a a possibility of epistemic plurality, a a possibility of opening up the the spaces for all forms of thoughts and all all ways of knowing uh, to express themselves and thereby suggest that the the, the, the vice-chancellor is about to lose his job uh, because the university is about to be undone and the multiversity is about to be born. For university assumes that there, there is a, a particular form of knowledge that is universalized that must then be uh, invited by everybody else for it is the standard form uh, of knowledge. It is the uh, uh, marker of what is to know. And the second point I want to make is that the, the, the concept of Afrocentric uh, diplomacy and Afro, Afro, Afrocentric uh, agency uh, suggests to us that there is a need then for end to coloniality, where coloniality isn't just colonialism, which is about juridical and administrative structures, but it is about the uh, power, the hierarchies and heterarchies of, of, of power uh, that decide who is and who is not. Um, and, and I'd like to quote here um, uh, from uh, Walter McNaller, who was just around here uh, on this subject. He says, once upon a time, scholars assumed that the knowing subject in the disciplines is transparent. It is disco- disincorporated from the norm. It is untouched by the geopolitical configurations of the world in which the people are racially ranked and regions are racially configured. He then went on to say this is what uh, um, um, uh, uh, enables the subject, it enables the scholar uh, to, um, um, to map the world and its problem and classify people and project of what is good for them. And in this worldview, the first world uh, uh, has knowledge, the third world has culture. The former has science, the latter has wisdom. The former is civilization, the latter has barbarism. The former is democracy, development, the latter lacks these. And therefore the former has the obligation to bring all of these to the latter. And therefore the former, the the latter, lacks um, ontological density and cannot know outside what has been given. And therefore under those conditions, efforts to generate answers to questions that face the periphery, including Africa, are made without answering the, the primary question about who, when, why, and where is knowledge generated. Mafeje, with me quotes, uh, 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 takes the sphere and asks that the fashionable free-flowing signifier is an illusion in a double sense. In the first sense, uh, no one can think and act outside determined circumstances, and the second sense, while we are free to choose the role in which we cast ourselves as active agents of history, we do not put on the agenda social issues to which we respond. These are imposed on us by history. Uh, for example, we would not talk of freedom if there was no prior condition. We would not proclaim Africanity if it had not been denied or degraded. We would not insist on Afrocentrism if it had not been for our Eurocentric uh, negations. Unlike the illusionary uh, free-voting signifier, it is the historical conjuncture which defines us socially and intellectually. Under the terminate 
global conditions on uh, that we are in right now, and African nations must therefore entail a rebellion, a conscious rejection of past transgression, a determined negation of negations. And that therefore what uh, Prof. Lansbeck is promo promising is a sort of an epistemic disobedience, an epistemic uh, rebellion against the given, against the coloniality of knowledge, against what, what Mafeja called Eurocentric negations of the other. And, and that is a huge promise to make, especially if you are in a university, especially if you are also found in the same system as everybody else there. It is a, a promise uh, that uh, nothing, uh, that, that, that what the African scholar need to do is, is, is a legitimate demand that uh, they should be understood from within, that issues must be understood from within and that it ceases to be purveyors of an alienated uh, intellectual discourse, and that they can speak for themselves, as you quote uh, in, 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 the, in the document, and that when they speak for themselves and about themselves and about the world, the world would hear an authentic voice, and that therefore they would be uh, liberating not just themselves, but liberating the discourse itself. Uh, it is therefore a, a recognition that there, is a lim there are limitations in the, both in the wealth systems, but limitations also regarding the knowledge system. For there would be no need to proclaim Afrocentric uh, agency today if, had it not been degraded, undermined, alienated, silenced. And that therefore the, the idea of an Afrocentric diplomacy suggests that there is another form of diplomacy that is being practiced by Africans that it is a, a, a diplomacy taking place in Africa, but it's a diplomacy that is alienated from the African subject. And that therefore it might be what uh, Majima Peja called alterity, a diplomacy of alterity, a diplomacy uh, on the basis of, of, of experiences, on the basis of uh, imperatives, on the basis of views from outside. It is a mimicry of something other than itself. And that therefore what you're promising is that uh, uh, it, might, it is possible uh, to unmask the coloniality of knowledge and the coloniality of political practice, the coloniality of, of, of African diplomacy. That though it's called African, it may not actually be African in essence. And that therefore, uh, there is a possibility in using certain kinds of epistemic lenses uh, to understand and unmask this and, and therefore liberate uh, the, 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 the thinking. But I think you are also arguing that uh, Afrocentric diplomacy or Afrocentric paradigm or Afrocentric agency is a rejection of victimhood also. It is not about saying uh, we're helpless, we're, we're victims of something else, but that it is an affirmation of the fact that, it, that an African is a subject in their own story. It is not an object, it is not a, a, a spectator. It is a rejection of Afro-pessimism, which, which argues that nothing good can come out of Africa because Africa had nothing. It was an empty land. It was a dark continent. It did not have until it was given. It was, it is a, a but at the same time, it is not a, a sort of a triumphalism or, 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 or mindless adulation of all, all things African. Uh, and, and, and I like uh, the, the, the manner in which you propose here because you then also ask us to go beyond just unmasking 
uh, Eurocentricness of the Eurocentricity of the knowledge about uh, African integration, for example. And you go on to demonstrate how you could uh, understand it differently by understanding from, from within what Achima Fetcher called endogenity. That, uh, that Africa can be, can be understood and understood from the bottom, can be understood from within. You actually answer the question that Gayatri poses in his article, very well from famous article which says, can the subaltern speak? Can the subaltern speak on the African continent? Can the subaltern understand his own condition? Can the subaltern explain the problems and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and, and the and the successes that we've seen on the African continent. But I also like the fact that they problematize African agency in the African continent in, in world affairs by demonstrating that it is it, it, there is a constraining effect of the system, the system that uh, uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein uh, describes as constituted by a core and a periphery in that in, in that order, and that there is a weakening effect. Uh, uh, and, that, and, that, uh, and that the weakening effect of, uh, of an agency from within the very same system. And therefore, uh, in your uh, comments on, 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 on the possibilities of this suggestion that you are making, or proposition you are making with regards to knowledge, you suggest that you may be moving towards a, a multiversity in the production of knowledge. That you are arguing that for a counter for counter hegemony rather than a counter hegemony. So you're not arguing for the dislodging of the current hegemony in order to impose the new hegemony, but you're arguing for a liberation of thought so that all sorts of various variety of thought may express themselves. Now, sh shortly in conclusion, then to touch on some of the things that uh, uh, are an implication of your proposition uh, in, in in the paper. Um, I would like to point out uh, two or three. The first one is that the agency of leaders without the active participation of the people has its limitations. And that therefore the agency you celebrate in this paper um, needs to be recognized as an agency with limitations. And, and an agency that is not institutionalized and therefore may depend too much on the wisdom of those few leaders who, in their liberated thinking, uh, began to champion a new approach by Africa to international affairs. And this is an agency also of men. So it doesn't challenge patriarchy, which is part of the package of, of the power structure that Africa's uh, liberated thinking needs to deal with. It is an agency of states, uh, the states, but states that are willing and able. There is a positive part to that, and that positive part is the point that Olikoshi has made several times before, that perhaps it's time for Africa to uh, uh, look beyond the, the, this limited principle of, of unanimity in African decision-making, that every one of the 54 African states must, must agree on everything before you move, and argues for a coalition of willing, a, a, a few willing and able states to get moving, and get others uh, to follow the, thereafter. Uh, of course, also, um, what, what, what bubbles up in the, in, the, in, the, in the paper that we need to think about carefully are limitations of state agency uh, taking place within a post-Westphalian uh, uh, neo-colonial world order, not outside it. 
It is, it is still an agency of nation-states that were drawn up in Berlin. Nation-states that do not have sufficient sovereignty even to, ex to, to express their independence and their autonomy. That these are perhaps nation-states that have a stake in the current rather than a, a yearning for the post-state environment. Which is why these states are able to coalesce around Afro, or around uh, around uh, francophone and anglophone lines when it comes to the election of the of the chairperson of the of the AU Commission, and there is no sense of Afrophone line. It's either anglophone, uh, uh, francophone, or lusophone, and that is a huge limitation. Another limitation is now the one one question that might be posed again to. Uh, to you to think about and all of us to think about is whether the agency that you talk about between 1998 and 2008 was therefore institutionalized um, and whether there has been as you suggest a dissipation of this agency after 2008 or there has been a metamorphosis of that same agency to another form whether there has been an evolution of this agency um, I like to end by uh, referring to the point that, um, that Nyerere makes in, in 1972, where he says, African nationalism, I quote, is anachronistic and is dangerous unless it is pan-Africanist at the same time. That therefore the fundamental problem for African integration is the African nation state and African nationalism. For it is premised on the uh, recognition, uh, if not uh, a commitment to the artificial creation of Berlin as the basis on which African liberation could have take place. But I really just really want to say thank you very much for suggesting to us that it is possible uh, to have a, a, a liberated thinking about Africa um, 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 uh, on the basis of uh, seeking new epistemic lenses, uh, which is what you call African uh, Afrocentric uh, agencies. Um, I'd like to end this by quoting uh, from Sabelo Kachenintov uh, in his recent paper. He says something now referring to now your job. Uh, and, and at that point, though I'm dressed like you, I came from that, I'm not, I'm not in this job. He says, I quote, the African university must be careful in recruitment of its professors. Uh, he continues to say, because most of the African academics and intellectuals are product of the Euro-American institutions, where they were fully exposed to Euro-American Euro epistemology as the only objective, universal, truthful, neutral, and disembodied way of knowing. I know and I trust that you are not that. You are a professor that that Professor Aaron Rensberg was right to employ, and I'm your friend. Uh, I hope you will also uh, put in a word for me. Thank you very much. <laughs>